Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. For those that don't know me, my name is Jaime. Yes, there you go. I've been forgetting to switch the slides for the last few weeks. I'm trying to be really intentional to get there. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad to welcome you here this morning. Uh, I'm seeing lots of faces I haven't seen in a long time, or maybe some faces I haven't seen ever. So if that's you, welcome. So glad you're here. I even see some people who came down from North Chatham to visit us and worship with us this morning. So if you're part of our North Chatham campus, a warm welcome to you. So glad you're joining us. If you are new, uh, welcome. What we're all about here at Chatham Community Church is connecting people to God and to each other so that together we can engage our world for good. And I hope you experience some of that this morning. Uh, I hope that on your way out, you'll stop and talk to me, say hi. I'll be in the back uh, right around where that exit sign is. Uh, Come say hi. I'd love to hear your name, a little bit about your story and how you ended up in Chatham County. And make sure you pick up one of our welcome gifts. Uh, It's one of the ways that we contribute to sort of the local businesses, the stuff that's in those welcome gifts we've bought from local businesses, and you taking them allows us to bless them even more. So please do that on your way out. Uh, there's a, a, a quote that's become sort of famous over the last 30 years. It's even entered into sort of the common lexicon. It's used in lots of other settings beyond where it initially started. And it's, if you build it, he will come. It's one of the more memorable lines of the movie that can be called a classic, for those of you who were young when it came out, Field of Dreams. Listen, it's been preserved by the Smithsonian or the Library of Congress, whoever decides what movies are preserved. It's classic, it's old, we just need to live with that. Uh, It's from the movie Field of Dreams, and in that movie, a man named Ray hears a voice speaking that phrase as he's walking through his cornfield in Iowa, and he has a vision of a baseball diamond and players playing uh, in that baseball diamond on or in his cornfield. And that voice, that message, that vision stirs something in him. uh, And it leads him on a journey that includes him plowing much of his corn under so that he can build a baseball field with stands and all at the risk of bankrupting himself at not having that crop, that harvest to sell. And and young versions, after he's built it, young versions of former players, long deceased players, start to emerge from the corn that remains and start to play ball in that field. As the movie progresses, he gets more messages from that voice and it sends him on a road trip. It sends him on a road trip to pick up a reclusive author and even, even stumble upon a young version of a deceased baseball prop prospect who never got his chance at bat. And throughout the movie, both at the beginning and as he's journeying on this road trip, the subject of Ray's father comes up. Ray's father loved baseball. And Ray talks about his deceased father, how his father loved baseball and how they had had a falling out and his father had died before they'd ever had a chance to reconcile. Near the end of the movie, after Ray has gone on this journey and implemented this this, this out-there idea to build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. You see cars lining up to come to the baseball field to watch these long-deceased players come and play, willing to pay money. Ray's, Ray's farm seems to be saved, and as the players are leaving for the night, they're heading back into the cornfield. One of the catchers takes his catcher's mask off, and Ray immediately recognizes It's a younger version of his dad. And Ray goes over and they get to have that chat that they never had a chance to have and they get to play catch 
one more time. And you realize that everything that the voice had Ray do throughout the movie was part of the process to get Ray ready to come to terms with the loss of his father and to reconcile in some ways with that relationship. We're nearing the end of our Living Supernaturally series here at Chatham Community Church, and we've been talking about how we can partner with the Holy Spirit in everything we set our minds to and everything we endeavor to do in our lives, to be open not just to the miraculous and not just to receiving the Spirit's guidance, but actually to partnering with the Spirit in even our day-to-day endeavors. Now, Living Supernaturally is not quite an if-you-build-it-he-will-come kind of proposition because the Spirit can't be controlled, it can't be manipulated, it can't be forced to do something. But just like the things that Ray did contributed to his eventual encounter with his father, to eventually being reconciled, to eventually being at peace, there are ways, there are things that we can do that cultivate supernatural living, that prepare us for those moments where the Spirit invites us into partnership in deeper and more meaningful ways. Some of those things are internal. It's stuff like beliefs. It's stuff like convictions. It's stuff like, you know, the things that we think about or the things that we pray. And some are external. There are things that we can do that create sort of an environment for supernatural living. And we're going to talk about a few uh, of those today. They're not all in one passage, so we're going to hop around a bit in the scriptures. And if you've been around here, you know that that's not what we normally do. But this is important ground to cover for the sake of this series, so we're going to make an exception today. If you have a Bible, we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Mark is the second book of the New Testament. It's one of the four accounts we have of Jesus' life, and we're going to start mostly in Mark 8. So if you, if you want to look it up, go ahead. If not, it's going to be on the screen. We'll read verses 22 through 25. But before we do that, I'm going to read one verse from Mark 1. I'm not going to tell you to go to Mark 1 because we're going to be there very briefly. But go ahead and wait for me in Mark 8, and you can look on the screen. Here we go. We'll start in Mark 1 and then head quickly to Mark 8. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And we'll go over to Mark 8. And they're talking about Jesus there, by the way. They came to to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now here's what's going on in that Mark 1 verse that we read first. Jesus is teaching at the synagogue, and something about his teaching is drawing people to him. It's it's markedly different than anything they've ever heard before. It draws not just people, but even an impure spirit gets drawn to this and, and confronts Jesus through a man. Jesus casts that impure spirit out, and the man is freed, and the people comment What they comment on is Jesus' authority. It's an authority that gets manifest not just in how he teaches, but even in how he engages with this impure spirit. Now, what I mean by authority when I say authority is that Jesus is clearly aware of and lives in light of what he's been empowered and called to do. I'm going to repeat that again. Jesus is aware of 
and lives in light of what he's been called and empowered to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on him, we read a few weeks ago to start the series. And it's on him to proclaim good news to the poor, to free the captives, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to remove oppression from those who are experiencing opposition, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when, a blind, when, when an impure spirit is there, when someone is oppressed, Jesus brings freedom. When there is a blind man that comes, Jesus brings sight. We talk, we've talked throughout this series that Jesus didn't just proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He inaugurated an age of the Lord's favor because Jesus has given his spirit to all those who call on his name. And you and I participate in that calling of Jesus. We have been empowered and called to do like Jesus did. We've been called to supernatural living. We have authority in that way. We have authority to be part of bringing good news to the poor, of bringing recovery of sight to the blind, of setting the captives free, of bringing freedom to those who are oppressed and experiencing adversity, to proclaim the year, the season, the time of the Lord's favor in people's lives. And it doesn't necessarily look like it did for Jesus in that first scene. You and I don't have to find ourselves teaching in a synagogue or in a church to be part of what supernatural living is. We have authority in that way. And being aware that we have authority, believing that we have authority, acting in light of the fact that we have authority, even if it doesn't look exactly like what it did for Jesus, is is one of the ways we create an environment for supernatural living. It's one of the ways we prepare ourselves for those invitations and those opportunities that the Spirit gives us to partner with Him. In fact, sometimes it looks a little bit more like it did in the second passage that we read. An opportunity or a need presents itself, right? These men bring a blind man to Jesus, and part of Jesus' mission is to bring recovery of sight to the blind. So what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the man outside the village. He uses saliva, which was a a common sort of healing. uh, It was common in healing practices in that time. And he lays hands on him. And then he asks him an interesting question. He asks him, do you see anything? Now, I'm about to say something that might strike some people as a bit controversial. So if it strikes you as controversial, hang in there with me for just a bit. I promise I'm going to explain. I think it's possible that Jesus didn't know if the man was going to be healed. Now, some of you are shocked by this, and it, uh, it feels uh, uh, controversial because we're always quick to think, well, Jesus is God, and God knows everything. Ergo, Jesus must know everything. And I'm not saying that's not true. But in the act of becoming incarnate, in the act of dwelling among us, some of what Jesus did was he set aside some of his godness. You've heard me say this before if you've been here for a while, that I believe that most of what Jesus does while he's on this earth is not out of his divinity, but out of his spirit-empowered humanity. That's why he can invite us into that kind of life. That's why he can entrust us with the spirit and send us out. That's why he can say things like, greater things than these, speaking of the things he did, you will do as he's speaking to his disciples and his followers. I think it's possible that when that man came to him, when he went out to him, when he laid hands on him, he didn't know if the man was going to be healed. And that feels very familiar. Because oftentimes when opportunities present themselves to partner with the Spirit, we don't know what's going to happen. 
We don't know what the outcomes are going to be. And yet Jesus still goes for it. He goes for it because it's part of what he's been sent to do. He's been sent to bring recovery of sight to the blind. So when a blind man comes, he goes for it. And when the healing isn't immediate at first, what does Jesus do? He goes for it again. He prays again or he lays hands again. And the man has been healed. And that's sometimes what living supernaturally looks like. A need or opportunity presents itself. It's in line with what we've been called to do either as followers of Jesus in general or specifically in the ways that we have been gifted and equipped and trained to do. Maybe someone is sick. And aside from doing all that we can to help them practically, we have a sense that they might need some prayer. Maybe it's someone that comes to us and they're going through or we see someone who's going through a hard time and you can tell that they need some encouragement. Maybe there's a decision to be made in a group that you're a part of. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with your family and they ask you for input. And in those moments, we get to decide first if we want to even try and engage and second if we want to do it with the Spirit if we want to invite the Spirit into it. And friends, the outcomes aren't always predictable, and they aren't always guaranteed. But what we're invited to is to attempt, to try, to engage. Years ago, one of my earliest prayers as a Christian was that I asked God for wisdom. Um, you know, I've told the story before. I was new to church, new to faith, new to religion, and I read in the Bible a passage that said that if you ask for wisdom, it will be given to you. And I thought, well, that must be true, so I'm just going to do that. And I started to pray for wisdom. And it's been a prayer that I've prayed almost every day since. One of the short prayers that I pray often is, Lord, make me a man of integrity and give me wisdom. And what's happened since I prayed that prayer is that for as long as I've been praying that prayer, people have come to me to ask for advice. And when I was very, now as a pastor now, that seems to make sense. But I didn't start off as a pastor, I started off as a punk. And, uh, and people still quickly started to come to me for advice. And I, at some point, realized, oh, God is giving me opportunities to use what I asked for. So I started to give as best I could and cautiously as I could wisdom. Whatever wisdom I had to give, I started to offer. It doesn't feel as shocking now, but when I was 17 or 18 or 20 and people who were de a decade older than me would come to me for advice, it was weird. It was odd, but God was doing something, and so I stepped in. And here's the thing. There are times when someone comes to me, when I'm in a situation, and I know that what I'm about to share is wisdom that's coming from God. Like, I have a sense of the Spirit's presence, and I go for it, and I see it land, and I see the people receive it, and I get to hear the story of how it changes. There are times where I'm sure that God is there, and I, and I say what I have to say, and it seems to fall flat, and I don't hear what happens. There are times where I'm just being faithful, where I don't know, I do the best I can, I try. And sometimes the most innocuous thing that I said, people have taken and it's made a difference in their lives because God has been present in that even though I wasn't clear or aware of it, and sometimes not. I have never been able to guarantee the results. I have never been able to guarantee the outcomes. I have never been able to predict what they are, but I've tried to be faithful in attempting. 
and attempting to say yes to that invitation every time it comes to share what I prayed for and what I believe in faith has been given to me. Friends, we've been called into partnership with the Spirit and we'll only experience it if we attempt it. We'll only, experiencing, we'll only experience what supernatural living is like if we try. We will never experience supernatural living if we don't go for it, if we don't try, if we don't attempt. We've been given authority, but what's the point in having authority if we never attempt, if we never attempt to exercise it? Now, let's take a look at two other events in Jesus' life to see what else can help cultivate an environment where we can experience more fully what it means to live in the Spirit or to partner with the Spirit. I'm going to read two passages back to back. And I want you to, and I want to see if you can catch sort of the common theme or the common element between the two. One is going to be in Mark 6, and the other is going to be in Luke 5. In Mark 6, we're going to read just the beginning of it, and in Mark 5, we're going to catch sort of the mid-end of the chapter. So here we go. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. We'll go now to Luke 5. One day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And we'll skip a few verses to the conclusion. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Now, you see, the authority and the attempting are there, right? They're there. They're present. Jesus tries. He says, goes for it. He knows what he's come to do, and when the opportunity presents itself, he goes for it. But there's something that gets called out in both passages, and it seems to affect, it seems to affect whether the supernatural can happen or to what degree. And that thing that's in common in both passages is this word, faith. Faith seems to correlate in some way to what supernatural living can look like. Now, I want to be careful about this because faith is a term that's been used to hurt people when it comes to supernatural living. Maybe you've been the the recipient of a phrase like this. Maybe you've said it or maybe you've heard it said. Ah, you just didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith, so you didn't get healed. Or you didn't get this or the relationship didn't go forward, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes people will say, well, you just need to have a little bit more faith, and blank will happen. As if miracles are on some sort of layaway plan, and faith is a currency. 
There's no biblical precedent for that. That's not the way it is. And if you've heard those phrases, if they've been used on you, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. If people did it maliciously, I pray that the Lord would convict them. If people did it non-maliciously, it's just one of the poor ways we've tried to rationalize or explain why some prayers don't get answered in the moment. And either way, I am sorry that you were the victim of that. And if you're the person who says these kinds of things, stop. Please, please stop. You are painting an inaccurate picture of who God is and how God moves. If you need other things to say, come to me. I'm glad to walk you through some other things that you can say in those moments. But those kinds of phrases hurt people. And they hurt people because they are not true. They are not true. Here's my best attempt, because there is a relationship between faith and supernatural living. Here's my best attempt today of explaining it. It's not about having enough faith to make something happen. It's about having a sense that something can happen. That's what faith is about, having a sense that something can happen, that God is able to make, thing ha- make something happen. The problem in Jesus' hometown isn't that people don't believe that miracles are possible, that they don't believe that healings are possible. Is that, it's that most people in Jesus' hometown couldn't fathom that the power of God could work through the punk they saw growing up, who's now put on airs of a rabbi and teacher. They could not fathom that the power of God could move through him for healing and miracles. And this being Jesus' hometown, I can imagine him knowing the needs because he saw them growing up. He knew the people who were sick. He had heard their stories. He had been part of their lives. I can't imagine the level of pain it must have caused him to know that something could happen and the people were unwilling to even fathom that it was possible. I wonder if that's what leads him to make that exclamation he does about the people's lack of faith. Because he knew what was at stake. He knew what it was going to cost. He knew what it was going to cost them. In the other passage, you've got these friends who've probably heard that Jesus is someone that heals. But Jesus is not healing that day. No healing is happening. Jesus is teaching like any other rabbi in a synagogue. But it seems that they've become convinced that if there's any way that their friend is going to get better, then it's at the feet of Jesus. They don't know what it's going to look like. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if it's going to happen. But they have this sense that if something is possible, it's got to be at the feet of Jesus. And so they go to great lengths to bring him to the feet of Jesus. Friends, faith is not a magic wand that we wave around and that forces things to happen, but it fosters an environment where things can happen. It fosters an environment where supernatural living can occur. Now, in the past, I've summarized what the posture around faith could be in a way that cultivates supernatural living. I'm going to share that phrase again in just a moment. I'm going to remind us that this is not an original phrase of mine. This is a phrase I've borrowed. The phrase is expectation without agenda. That would create a sense of expectancy, of expectancy not dictating what the Spirit will do, but with a sense of expectancy for what the Spirit might do, what the Spirit could do, and develop a longing for what we want him to do. A longing and an expectancy. And this applies not just to the miraculous. This applies to how we live in the Spirit in every area. 
This applies to the kind of expectancy we might have about conversations we're going to have with people where we want and believe and long for God to speak words through us. It, it, it happens to me when I'm sharing wisdom, I long, I long for the Lord to move in that wisdom, to give me the right words to share with people, the right advice, the right guidance. It can be a part of how we lead if we have the opportunity to teach or to direct things or to do anything that we do in any setting. We can have an expectancy because the Lord can move in those places that the Lord might. Now the passage with the friends bringing the man on the mat also has a really interesting phrase in addition to what we've already shared. It says, And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, one might reasonably ask if that means that there were times where the power of the Lord to heal the sick was not with Jesus, but what I want to focus on is this idea that the Spirit was present with Jesus, ready to do something that Jesus wasn't doing in that moment. Jesus wasn't healing Jesus was teaching. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was being disobedient. I'm not saying that. What I'm suggesting is that Jesus and the Spirit were in partnership, and Jesus was aware that should an opportunity arise for healing to happen, the Spirit was at the ready. The Spirit was at the ready, and healing was going to come. And we, friends, are in partnership with the Spirit as well. How much more supernatural living would we do if we started to engage with the Spirit to see what the power of the Spirit or what the power of the Lord was with us to do on that day? What if we regularly ask questions like, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? What do you want to do today? What do you want to do in this situation? Or we may ask, Spirit, is there something you want to do? Or is there something you want to make your power available for? I don't know what the question sounds like for you, but what might it look like if we checked with the Spirit? What might it look like if you happen to be a classroom teacher, if you checked with the Spirit and said, Spirit, is there some way you want to move in this classroom today? Is there some way you want to focus my teaching? Is there some way you want me to encourage a student in a particular way? Is there someone that needs me to ask a question? in order to unlock something that's going on? What if as doctors or nurses, we ask, Spirit, is there some way you want to move in this place today? And I know there are lots of restrictions around praying and all that, so let's broaden it a little bit uh, and say, uh, maybe there's an opportunity to just speak a word of peace over someone as they're engaging with a diagnosis that's terrifying and scary. Maybe the Spirit wants you to slow down so that something might happen, so that he might partner with you. You can do this when leading a meeting, when sitting for lunch at school. In any part of your day, you can ask, Spirit, is there something you want to do? And I'm not saying that you're going to get a sense every time, because sometimes what the Spirit wants is just go on. Go on living as you're normally living. Live as someone who's reflecting Jesus. But if you ask this question, it might certainly make a difference when you do get a sense. You'll have an opportunity. You'll have an invitation. You'll get to attempt if you're willing to go for it. Now, before I go on to the last one for today, I want to mention uh, one that we're not going to talk about today. Another way to cultivate an environment of supernatural living is to become aware of and to engage with and steward the gifts that the Spirit gives us. Uh, and the reason I'm not going to talk about it today is because next week the whole sermon is going to be about that. 
But I do want to say that if you are aware of your spiritual gifts, if you've become, uh, if you if you know that you have some spiritual gifts, using them is a way to cultivate an environment of of supernatural living. Um, we're going to read two more verses from Mark, and here's what's happening in that passage: Jesus's disciples had tried to pray for a young boy who had an impure spirit. And the the impure spirit did not leave the young boy. And so the father brings the boy to Jesus, and Jesus casts the spirit out, and the boy is freed. And just after that, here's what happens. After Jesus has gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And in some older manuscripts, it'll say by prayer and fasting. Um, I grew up on a tropical island. I grew up in Puerto Rico. It's a beautiful island. Uh, growing up on a tropical island has made me snobby about beaches, so I'm very sorry. If any time you've talked to me about beaches in North Carolina or somewhere else, I have been underwhelmed. <laughs> Listen, I'm scarred from when I used to live in New York, New Jersey, and people talked up the Jersey Shore, and I went there once, and that was enough. Don't even get me started on lakes that we call beaches. Anyway, like I said, right, I'm spoiled. I grew up on a tropical island, right? You're surrounded by water. You're not just surrounded by water, but you're surrounded by accessible beaches. There's a, a law in Puerto Rico that all beaches are public. And some people are trying to change that, but it means that you have access to beautiful beaches, some of the most beautiful beaches in the world even, right? Many are easy to get to. There's parking. They're set up for people to visit. You could easily go your whole life, going to different beaches in Puerto Rico and having great times, having great times. But every once in a while, right, people decide to go to this particular beach. It's very out of the way. It's probably the hardest beach to get to in all of Puerto Rico. It's uh, even well off, well far, well far off from the beach, the roads there are not well maintained. They're bumpy, uh, potholes aren't filled with any level of regularity. Uh, and even as you near the beach. You're still not there, but as you near the beach, you have to go off-road. And then you get to the land where the beach is, and it is a wildlife preserve, which means at some point, you can't drive anymore. Right? You've gone off-road, and then you can't even drive anymore. Then you have to walk. You have to walk to a place that has not been developed or built. There are no hotels. There are no facilities. All there is is a beach. All there is is this. Yeah. Now listen, you could go your whole life in Puerto Rico, visit lots of beaches. You could visit beautiful beaches, uh, fantastic beaches. Never go to this beach. And you would, you would be considered to have had a great beach-going life and not missed out on much. But if you're willing, and if you want to go through all the trouble that it takes to get there, you get to see one of the most beautiful places in Puerto Rico. Here's the parallel to the passage. Sometimes it, it takes specific preparation to engage in certain aspects of supernatural living. There's lots of supernatural living that we can do just going on in the regular habits of life. The disciples had, and they were, and they will continue to live supernaturally. But something about this particular situation required something extra. In Christian tradition and even in other faith traditions, that sort of extra is what's sometimes called consecration. 
Consecration is a particular time that people set aside where they do some extra spiritual preparation. What that looks like varies. Some people fast, some people pray in specific ways, some people focus on specific readings of the Bible, but they've designated a time to focus in a concerted way in preparation, sometimes for something specific, sometimes not. But they, they, they have a sense that there needs to be something extra. There's no list that says, here are the aspects of supernatural living that require consecration, and then here are the things you need to do to consecrate yourselves for those particular experience. It's not scripted. It's not scripted. But it seems to be that there are things for which a deliberate seeking of God is needed in order to unlock. It's beyond what you would normally do, and it's for a set of time. Now, here's the thing. You could go through your whole life partner with the Spirit in fantastic ways. You could live supernaturally and never, never, never miss out on anything without, without having experiences of consecration. But if you choose to consecrate yourself, if you choose to engage in different aspects of preparation, you will unlock experiences or you will be ready when those opportunities come. It's a choice. It's not a requirement. But if you opt to do it, certain things might open up because it takes specific preparation to engage in certain aspects of supernatural living. Here are the things we've talked about today. The things that, this is not exhaustive, but these are the things we talked about today that can cultivate a life of supernatural living. We talked about authority. Knowing who we are, knowing what we've been called to, knowing what we've been empowered to, and engaging in it. Attempting, giving it a try. Trying it, actually exercising that. We talked about the environment of faith that we cultivate and having expectation without agenda. We talked about checking with the Spirit, asking what the Spirit might do. We talked, we, we're going to talk about gifting next week, and we talked about consecration. We've prayed at the end of every uh, sermon in this series, and we're going to do that today. The two things I'd like for you to do. One, consider if there's one of these that God is inviting you to engage in in a more deliberate way, to cultivate your life of supernatural living. So I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit. I'm going to ask the Spirit to show you. Let's pray. Spirit, right now, you are in this place and you want us to engage in supernatural living. You want us to engage in supernatural living. And Lord, this is an invitation. So Lord, if there's any way that you're inviting us this week to cultivate that environment, that environment where we can sense your invitation, that environment where we can be ready for your invitation, that environment where we can be open to what you want to do, not just in the miraculous, not just in hearing your voice and being guided, but engaging in our day-to-day. Would you show us right now? Would you show us right now? Would you show us right now? Now, if you've gotten something, I want to encourage you to engage in that. You can sort of stay in that posture of prayer. I'm going to share a little bit more because next week, At the end of our sermon, the prayer time is going to be focused on gifting. We're going to to have some people ready to pray for people to receive, to become aware of, or to be encouraged to engage in using their spiritual gifts. So if you didn't sense that God was inviting you to cultivate any of these things, I'm going to invite you this week to consecrate yourself, to be ready for receiving gifts next week. 
And even if you did receive something, if you want to consecrate yourself, I'm going to invite you to do that as well. I, we've been praying for this for a long time now. We believe the Spirit is going to move next week. We can't predict how it's going to happen, but I want to invite you to consecrate yourself. To spend some time this week, it could be as easy as just including a prayer in every time you pray that says, Lord, I want to be open to the gifts you want to give me next week. That could be the extent of your concentration, of your consecration, just a focused time and a longing for you to receive what God has for you. Whatever it is, imagine what's possible if all of us do at least something to cultivate an awareness of what the invitation of the Spirit is, to cultivate a an environment where supernatural living can happen. It's not just what happens here on Sunday morning. It's what happens in our homes. It's what can happen in our neighborhoods. What can happen in our schools. What can happen in our places of business. What can happen in every place that we find ourselves in. So now, Lord, would you um, secure the word that you've given? Would our, would our friends, would my friends have the invitation? Would they follow through? And would you meet them? In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this is the first of the month, first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of the month, we take communion together. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me uh, on the stage, and I want to explain how we're going to do this. So if you are following Jesus in any way, the, you are welcome. You are welcome to join us for communion. Uh, this is a meal or a, a, a rite that Jesus established on his last night with his disciples. It's a way in which we remember Jesus' sacrifice and his promise. And we take it together as people have taken it together for millennia, and we take it together as people all around the world are taking it together when they gather for worship. We will speak words that have been spoken in as many languages as people have praised Jesus, and we will remember what Jesus did. So in a moment, the worship team is going to play a song. While they're playing, I'm going to invite you to come up and grab uh, uh, one of those cups that has a gluten-free cracker and one of the cups that has grape juice and return to your seat. At some point in the song, uh, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to lead us as we take the elements together. Before I hand it off to the worship team, I'm going to invite uh, my communion table hosts to come uh, to the tables that I've asked them to host. And uh, once they do, then the worship team will lead us in song. It's fitting before we take communion to just take a moment and reflect. Consider how we are coming to the table of the Lord. Some of us are coming tired. Some of us are coming excited. Some of us are growing weary, are coming weary. Some of us are coming with our faith in a bit of tatters. Some of us are coming hopeful. However we're coming, we're all welcome. But let's take a moment. One, identify how you're coming to the table. Two, see that the Father welcomes you. Let's take a moment in silence. place is secure at the table, Lord. Many, many years ago, the Lord Jesus, on his last night with his friends before he was to be arrested, he took ordinary things, bread and wine, and he created an extraordinary moment. It's beautiful that that's in some ways what God does with us. 
He takes ordinary things, our desire for people to be well, and he can create moments of healing, our desire that people be guided well, and he can bring words of wisdom, our desire that people would live in the fullness of freedom, that they would achieve what God wants them to, and he can liberate them from the evil forces that oppress them. But on that day, he took bread, and he took wine. He took the bread, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples after blessing it and giving, giving thanks. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And throughout history, followers of Jesus have done this to remember that Jesus was present with humanity, that Jesus gave his life so that we might be in relationship with God and with each other for eternity. Let's take and eat in remembrance of him. same way Jesus took the cup. He blessed it. He gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he talked about the cup. He said, take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant. Here's what that means. It means that on that day he was inaugurating a promise and it was a promise not just to those disciples. It's been a promise to humanity. It's why we believe that the things that Jesus said he was going to do happened and that the things he promised would happen will happen. It's why we can say with confidence, the Lord is with us, that the Spirit is in us, and that he's invited us into partnership to this life is because Jesus promised it. So when we take and drink now, we take and drink saying, yes, we believe. Let's take and drink in remembrance of him. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you gave us this right to remember you by. Thank you that you gave us this right to remind ourselves, to remind ourselves that you are with us, that you are present, that you love us, that you welcome us, and that you finish what you start, finish the good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you